All right, so um, I strategically placed handouts as you all were praying. Uh, if you don't have enough in front of you somewhere, um, there's, I think, a couple on the back uh, table. Uh, so I think we're good on, on that. So need to jump into it today. So the tabernacle for his glory, we're continuing our series. Last week, we looked at the court. Right, We looked at the outside of the tabernacle structure, if you will, and we looked at the court. And we're going to continue, at least in that space today, with the brazen altar. The brazen altar is the first piece of furniture, if you will, the first thing that you would encounter once you got past the gates, uh, the door of the court. So even when the the curtains of the court were pulled back for the purpose of allowing the sacrifice in, the animals in, you would see most likely the brazen altar right there in front of you. It is the first thing. And spoiler alert, it's a picture of the judgment that we all face as sinners. And we need a sacrifice to go on that brazen altar before we can do anything else. In our relationship with God, we have to have the substitutionary propitiation of the sacrifice of the Lord in our lives. We can't get past that. We can't get to a place of connection and communion with God without somebody dying. And it's, I mean, we're going to see, today is a bloody lesson, not because I'm British, like, it's a bloody lesson. No, was that, a, was that an okay British accent? I don't do accents well, no? no. It like, did it sound pirate-ish? I don't know. I, I feel like my British and pirate and Irish kind of all are all the same. Um, so, also, spoiler alert, I'm showing up as a pirate on the night of uh, the, uh, the Fall Fest Halloween thing. If I can pull it off, I'll actually have an operating hook. So we'll see. I'm not going to ask you to pray for it, but anyway, we'll see. We're we're working on that. Huh? Who is? It's a pirate ship. I'll I'll stop by. It reminds me. Does anybody know what the a pirate's favorite letter is? R. You would think it's the R, but it's actually the C. Um, okay. Um, yeah, it's not the I. No, it's not the I. Missing the I. Where was I? Somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to die. Okay? So let's talk about the brazen altar. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits abroad. Broad, the altar shall be four square, so it's square, and the height thereof shall be about or shall be three cubits, and thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, same material, and thou shalt overlay it with brass, and thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, his flesh hooks, his fire pans, all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network, a, a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. 
and thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the um, staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards, thou shalt make it. As it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. Now, we don't have uh, time to necessarily go and read all of this, but as you'll see, this is the, that was the design. That was the speaking of God to Moses. This is the build. This is the action that followed. This is our pattern, right? So we know that it was being made, all the, the vessels of the altar and that like. But I want to I wanna focus just a second here. And he made for the altar a brazen grate of network under the compass thereof unto the midst. And he cast four rings for the four ends of the grate of, of brass to be placed for the stage. So this is a little bit more descriptive uh, of the network or grate, okay? So we see what are the dimensions and structures, a, structure, uh, a dimension and structure? It's five cubits by five cubits by three cubits. So that means it's about seven and a half feet broad, okay? Seven and a half feet broad, seven and a half feet wide. I don't know, um, I, you know, I thought about trying to do that, but it's, it's pretty good size. I'm guessing it's from me to Tim, and then probably from Tim to Ashton and back. So it's a pretty good size, maybe a little deeper this way and maybe not quite so, maybe between Ashton and, and Jamie. So it's a pretty good size altar, okay? Now it's, an, it's interesting because we normally think of an altar as a place of worship, but an altar was often a place of sacrifice, okay? And we've kind of twisted or, or applied it only to a place of worship, right? You can, you'll hear a pastor or a preacher say, you can come up to the altar and pray today, right? And that's true, but it should be a place of sacrifice, not killing a lamb, but dying to yourself or sacrificing uh, your, you know, whatever it is you need to, to get right with the Lord. So it was square, Okay, it's about four and a half feet tall. So if you could imagine a piece of plywood, two pieces of plywood laid down next to each other, that's about the, the diameter. If you stood one of those, you know, pieces of plywood up, that's about the height, okay? Just so to get your, to wrap your brains around it. Now, there was a grate and it said under the compass or under the edge of the, uh, of of the altar, okay? And the grate went halfway up so that it was in the middle of the center of the brazen altar. And then there, but yet, while it was still in the center, there were four rings for the grate. And the four rings are what the staves went through. So you have a little space, uh, white space next to this. I'm gonna ask you, take take a minute here, and I want you to draw what you think the brazen altar look like. Now, I am not going to test your drawing ability. I will not call it up. You don't have to draw a priest because it would be a stick figure and that would not be representative of accuracy. So there's no, there's, it's okay. Just remember it's square. It's a little, a little shorter than it is wide, right? And it's completely square. It's got a grate in the middle of it that the, that the, that the staves run through. Uh, that's the part I, that I really kind of want you to focus on is how does the grate in the middle of it receive the staves that in theory need to carry the weight of the whole thing? Okay, and this is a part where most, I believe most 
uh, representations of the brazen altar break down from Scripture. So, I'll give you another minute here. So, you know, I will not grade you on size, but this key of the grate or network being in the midst of it, yet under it, yet the staves going through it, that's the key. While you do that, I'm going to... uh, Okay, I'm not going to advance. I was going to talk about the pans for just a second. But we'll we'll wait on that. Okay. So you've had time to, to at least think about it, even if you haven't captured it. So this is the most accurate representation I have seen on the internet. Okay? And it has this great or network that with the, the rings going down so that it's under the compass, but it's to the middle, right? To the center and to the middle. So it's the network is under the compass of the edge of the, of the altar, right? But it also allows the staves to carry it. And I think you can pictorially understand that they would then stack that on there, okay? The problem is, you couldn't grab the brazen altar. Like, how do you get that on there? Right? Well, unless you just did it one time and never touched it again, that'd be a problem because you weren't supposed to touch these things. You weren't supposed to to move them with you. That's what the staves were for, okay? The other thing about this design, I think, that that doesn't address a very important point is it doesn't address the ashes and it doesn't address the coals that were needed for the rest of the ministry, the coals going in to be laid on the altar of incense, okay? Which I know we didn't talk about, but we'll, we'll get to that, okay? So this is the closest, and I, this is one of those things where I'm not afraid to, normally I don't go here. Normally I don't think I have the answer and no one else does, but I have yet to find a, a pictorial representation that takes all of it into account. So I'm going to give you my pictorial representation and it may be wrong, okay? But if you can imagine a brazen altar that in essence had legs, it would be square, it would be that. The grate would be a flat network with rings and then you would slide the grate under. It would get under with the staves And that would allow you to pull out, as necessary, the coals for the purpose, because there were no tongs. You could pull the grate out for the purpose of pulling coals off. You could also get under it for the purposes of the shovels cleaning the ashes. And no one's really addressed that. And I'm not sure what the the spiritual implication is. So, like, please know my heart. I'm not trying to be right on this. But I don't think any representation that I've seen takes it all into account, okay? Because the, the, the tools were very important. There was a fair amount of scripture, scripture space given to these tools. Matter of fact, let's talk about them for a second. There's pans and shovels for the ashes. Pans and shovels that are designed to, to pull out the, to literally clean up 
after the, the, the sacrifice was consumed. There were these forks, these meat forks, literally for placing and moving the sacrifice on that, on what we would like the grill, if you will, the, the grate, right? So as one thing was burning down and it needed to be moved over and the next one placed, it could be. Also the basins for the blood. Now it's interesting that the basins for the blood are associated with the altar, which is all about fire. So we're going to get to that in just a second. Okay. But basins for the blood and then the fire pan for taking the coals into the tabernacle. There was a fire pan literally designed to take the coals into the tabernacle itself from the court into to be placed on that altar of incense. Okay. Very important tools. Now, one of the things that we see in Numbers chapter 4, I think, is this on your page, Numbers 4? Yes. Um, 414. And they shall put upon it all the vessels thereof, wherewith they minister about it, even the censers, the flesh hooks, the shovels, the basins, and all the vessels, all the vessels of the altar. So they were designed even during transport to be gathered up and carried along with the altar. Now, this is really important because the tools of ministry are associated with the sacrifice of ministry, okay? God spent a fair amount of time. He doesn't talk about the the hammers that are necessary to drive the pins in. He doesn't talk about the process of of necessarily the ropes or the process to hang the... The, the tenting over the tabernacle. He doesn't talk about hammering the rings in and how those all together. He doesn't talk about tools any, arguably anywhere else except with this altar. The tools of ministry are inextricably linked to the sacrifice. We shouldn't miss that. We see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You have the the, the pans and the shovels for the ashes. You have the fire pans. You have the basin for blood. You have what you need for ministry provided in the word of God so that you are truly furnished, that you have everything you need to be able to perform the ministry, to be associated with the consumed sacrifice. So our first building lesson today is you will always have what you need for ministry. You will never be without it. And I would argue if you don't have it, You don't need it. We spent a little bit of time up in New Philadelphia, Ohio. And it's a little bit difficult because every time we go up there, the the church in New Philadelphia, Troy Stogsdale is the pastor, it sits on, I don't know, literally dozens of acres. Like, they literally have their own mountain behind it. Like, it's beautiful. Fall, you should try to go sometime to the certainty conference because the leaves are changing and it's like picturesque. It's just beautiful. They have a pickleball court. No, no, no. They have two pickleball courts. They have a Frisbee golf course. They have a pavilion with a fire pit. They have a, uh, they have a barn 
with a coffee maker thing in it, whatever, a, a, a cappuccino machine. And like, they have what we do not have. And we always, we always have to check each other's hearts. Like, stop, stop envying, stop coveting. Sam one year said, if we could just take some of this land back to MBT, well, that actually wouldn't help because where would we put it? <laughs> you know what? We evidently don't need it. Now, I'm not trying to be holier than thou. Like, they're using it for ministry, except the pickleball courts. I'm not kind of, I'm not sure. Maybe they are. I do think they're using it as an outreach, right? Huh? It's an on-ramp to ministry. There you go. Although watching Pastor Will and Pastor uh, Jeff Grasher go at it on the pickleball court, I'm not like, I'm not, it's kind of like men's basketball. I'm not sure. I think if you know, you know. Okay. You will always have what you need for ministry. We don't evidently need pickleball because we have um, cultural exchange. We have Friends of Internationals. We have other ministries here that is what we need. We have a proximity to universities they don't have. Guess what? We're going to strengthen ourselves in the areas of ministry that we have the tools to execute on that ministry. So well, let's move from the altar itself to the, to the fire. The fire was a consuming fire. In Leviticus 9.24, when the, the first dedication happens and, and the, the priests are being, uh, are being consecrated, it says, and there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which all the people saw. And they shouted and fell on their faces. I probably would, I might shout and fall on my face too. If out of nowhere, like the priests are con- con- getting consecrated and they're burning their, the, you know, they're getting stuff ready on the altar. And, like, that'd be a pretty, that'd be a scary moment. I would fall on my face and I would shout. The Lord showed up and he consumed every part of that burnt offering that day. It's interesting. We don't have time to look at it. But in Second Chronicles 7.1, the exact same thing happened at the temple the dedication of the temple. The Lord showed up with a fire, consumed it. And the people, man, they were excited about it. In Deuteronomy 4.24, notice, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire. And in Hebrews 12.29, for our God is a consuming fire. He, that which he wants to receive in, in, in sacrifice, he takes it all. And again, that's not a prideful, arrogant, weird kind of um, uh, perspective of God. That's a beautiful picture because he can also be not a consuming fire. We saw that earlier in the book of Exodus with the burning bush that was not consumed. So this is not a limitation of God's ability. This is a choice of God's decision to consume that which was on the altar. It brought him pleasure. It's also a perpetual fire, a perpetual fire. In Leviticus 6, 12 and, and 13, and the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. And notice it shall not be put out and the priest shall, bur- wor- uh, shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. 
and he shall burn it thereon, the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall uh, ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. And there's a study out there if you want to take the time. I actually went there and couldn't figure it out. So I will allow you the opportunity to figure it out and teach me. Because the fire is not to go out, yet the altar is supposed to be covered when it's in transit. Can't get my brain around that one. It's supposed to be covered with a, with a covering of, I think it was the skins, the same kind of skins that we saw in the tabernacle. So it would, in theory, suffocate the fire, arguably unless the design allowed air to come in from the bottom. But it was to be covered. The fire, the perpetual fire that was never supposed to go out was sometimes supposed to be covered. I think there's something there. I'll let you teach me. So a judgment fire is actually uh, created by a consuming fire and the perpetual fire. In Deuteronomy 9.3, the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them. Yet at the exact same time, notice in Mark 9, where their worm dieth not, their fire is not quenched. In Revelation 19 and 14, in, discuss, uh, in um, looking at um, judgment, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And they said, and again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or not day or night. There is a consuming fire, and there is a perpetual fire, and it is one of judgment. Make no mistake that the bronze altar is a place of judgment. It's a place where sin is dealt with in a very, I guess I'll use the word cruel, a very graphic way. Somebody's got to die. Blood's got to be spilled, which is our next point. And it's going to be consumed from fire. This is not... This is not a feel good. In order for you to have a relationship with the Lord, blood had to be spilled and, a, and the offering had to be consumed. So our building lesson, sin has eternal consequences. So does its judgment. Again, a little bit of homework for you if you want. There's only one thing that appears to not be perfect throughout the eternity future. You can find it in the book of Revelation. It's a lamb presented to the people, to the, to the body there, as it had been slain. I, I can still, I'm literally getting the, the hair on the back of my neck and yeah, I do have hair in other parts of my body. It's, I know it's not on my head, but the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because I can still think about the pierced hands and pierced feet and pierced side of our Lord and how there's only one. I'm going to be perfect. If you're saved, you're going to be perfect in eternity, but Jesus is not. For all eternity, we get the opportunity to see the lamb as he had been slain. 
This was not just a commitment to leave heaven, to come to earth and die for our sins and, oh, it would just be wiped away and everything. He's got to, he's going to see past it. And I actually had somebody say, you know, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't that much. If he was really God, he knew it would be okay on the back end. Yeah. Okay. I at least see your point that he's the only thing I can find in eternity that is not perfect in heaven. For the rest of time, for the rest of eternity, when time ceases to exist, our Lord shows the evidence of a sacrifice. Sin has eternal consequences and so does its judgment. We've touched a couple of times on blood. The blood-stained altar in the ground around the, the, the altar, I, I've seen some representations where they actually had a, 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 a little bit of a ramp that they would have built up to the altar so that they could get these massive animals onto the altar. I can't imagine the flesh hooks that would be necessary to place a cow on an altar. Like that sounds like work. Oh, and talk about dead weight. (laughs) I mean, like hard, hard work. To be a priest. They would have in theory had this ramp because the ground around it would be so soft with the blood of the sacrifice. That's kind of weird to think about. There's that much blood around the altar that the ground would have been softened by it. That's crazy. So we talked about the first consecration, uh, the consecration of the priest. When, it, when that is described in Exodus 29 as what they are to do, and thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar. So these horns would have stuck up from the four corners of the altar. So after the sacrifice for the consecration of the priests, they would take some of the blood in the basin that they would have collected the blood in, and they would have put it, on the horns of the altar, okay? Whether they did it on one or all four or what, I don't know, but they would do it with their finger. I mean, take, put it on the, put it on the thing. Now, I'm gonna go out on a doctrinal limb. I think there's something here about Jesus writing with his finger, okay? I'm not, I can't definitively connect that, but I think there's something about that he's pointing to the fact that the, Blood will be applied with the finger, but that's another thing. Put the and the and then notice pour all pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. Every time a sacrifice, it's caught, it's captured. Whatever they don't capture continues to bleed. And again, sorry for the graphic nature, but it is what it is. And then they would take with their finger and they would put some blood on the on the horn or horns, and then they would pour it out beside the altar. It's not going to take long before that ground gets, gets, uh, gets wet. Even the burnt offering, and we're going to run through this kind of quick. I don't think, other than the, the burnt offering, I don't think you have a fill in the blanks here. And the priests, Aaron's sons, <clears throat> shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the taberna- uh, tabernacle of the congregation. And in verse 11, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. So they would take and they would put the blood of the burnt offering around. If you go to the second offering, the peace offering in Leviticus 3, 2, 8, and 13, and Aaron's sons, the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. 
just in case you missed it, and the Aaron sons shall sprinkle the blood thereof round about the altar. And again in verse 13. This was a very dirty, very bloody proposition. The sin offering happens in 4.7, 4.25, 4.30, and 4.34. Shall pour out the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar. The priest shall take the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and shall pour out his blood at the bottom of the altar. Again, in 30, they'll take the blood with his finger and put it on the horns and pour out the blood. 34, the exact same process. A lot of blood being spilled. A lot of blood being spilled. And with every one, I put myself, I often put myself in the shoes of the priest in this situation is I've been studying through this and thinking about how difficult that job would have had to have been. Every day, hour after hour, slaughtering animals, taking the blood, putting it on the altar, consuming them in the heat. Like, that's rough stuff. That's rough stuff. But without it, there's no redemption. Without it, people are stuck in their sins. Without it, there's no forgiveness. And that brings us to our last slide, or our last main point here. Blood-stained cross and ground. Like, you can't miss the fact that Jesus did this exact thing in John 19, 34. One of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Jesus didn't bleed out on the cross before his death. But he did after his death. I know Sam uses that, that line that Jesus bled out for us. And, for, and that's true, but that's not his mechanism of death. But he did bleed out after his death. And without the pouring out of the blood on the altar... On the cross, there can be no forgiveness of sins. It was the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, which I think is really interesting in 1 Peter chapter 1, because I don't remember anybody sprinkling the blood of Jesus anywhere. So that means that there was a spiritual event happening. At the same time, there was a physical event of his sacrifice where Jesus' blood was in fact sprinkled we're not that, there yet, but you may remember it from a couple weeks ago. On the mercy seat, because they couldn't touch it. On the horns, they could take it and they could do this, right? But once you got on that mercy seat, you touched that bad boy, you were just like Indiana Jones. You were toast. Well, not Indiana Jones, but the, bad, the Nazis in Indiana Jones. You know what I meant. Like, you can't do that. So you would have to take the blood and sprinkle it. So this happened with Jesus' blood. That has to have occurred in heaven. Has to have occurred in heaven. It was a precious, precious blood of Christ. As a lamb without blemish and without spot, he was sacrificed for us. So our last building lesson for the day, blood must be poured out for your redemption. It must be poured out. It's dirty work. It's hard work. It's frustrating work day in and day out dealing with sacrifice and seeing that something's got to die. Every kid in every 
family that brought up this animal that they took care of that could provide a lot of sustenance for them, a lot of provision, they would bring it to the door and they would turn it over to the priests. And what would the priest do? He would take it and love it. No, he would take a, a, a knife and slit its throat and then it would burn. It would be con- completely consumed. Just a few hours after they took it, it was as if there was nothing left for it from their sacrifice except their redemption. Except their redemption. In Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Unto them that look for him shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Like, he was our sacrifice for the sins of many. And that's the beauty. One of the, one of the beautiful things about Christ's sacrifice is that there doesn't have to be a gazillion lambs and goats and bulls and turtle doves and things sacrificed anymore. He took it all. And, and for, for believer, like I know I'm guilty of this. Don't lose sight of that, lose sight of that fact. I know I, I take it for granted. I know I take it for granted. And it takes passages like this. It takes the, the, the looking square into the face of a dying savior for me to kind of like reset <laughs> that somebody had to die so I could live. Don't forget it. And if you haven't trusted the Lord as your savior, guess what? Great news. He died in your place because somebody's got to die. And he died in your place. And that blood can be applied to the mercy seat on behalf of you and your family as not just a burnt offering, but a peace offering and a sin offering and a meat offering. There's several offerings. He fulfilled all of it one time. And the beauty is you just need to accept it. You just have to acknowledge that you were a sinner, that somebody else died for you, and you can believe on that sacrifice for your sins. Like he paid for them. Why not accept the gift of what Jesus has already paid for? Like it seems like kind of a duh to me. It is a faith proposition. If you've not made that decision, I'm begging you to grab me after class. Let's talk more about this because it's super important that just because, look, look, sacrifices were dying in the tabernacle, but only for those that brought the sacrifice. If you didn't bring your sacrifice, you were still in your, in your sin. There is a personal component to this. There's a very personal connection that you need to have with the sacrifice. So if you've not done that, please, please grab me afterwards and we'll talk more about this. But again, believer, don't lose sight. I mean, we're going to get done here. We're going to pray. You're going to grab some more yummy carrot cake or pumpkin stuff or uh, the biscuits and gravy in a, in a little thing, which is amazing. You're going to walk up. We're going to talk about the beautiful colors of fall. We're going to enjoy each other's company. We're going to sing praises. Like, like we're, it's all good. Don't lose the fact, don't lose, don't lose sight of the fact that there was a time when somebody's blood had to, had, to, had to mar the ground for you to have the life that you have, the spiritual, eternal life that you have. It's super important. Lord, we thank you for the brazen altar. We thank you for the fact.